The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Well, good morning. Everybody awake? This 11 o'clock service ought to be awake now. I know it's 10 o'clock, but at least we're up and going, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is our text today. We're going to look at this entire chapter this morning uh, for the sake of time. I'm not going to read it in its entirety. So while you're finding your place there, if you don't have a copy of the Bible, we're on page 960 in the chair Bibles or underneath a chair in front of you or close by you. Uh, While you're looking for a Bible, I also want to draw your attention, if you're a guest, to a Connect card in the back of the chair. If you take one of those and fill out the information, end of our service, we're going to take an offering. We only want you to participate by placing that card in the offering plate. That'll let us know that you're here with us today worshiping. Now, I want everyone to look at the text with me for a moment before I pray. I want you to see the bookends of chapter 14. First two words. Pursue love. Last verse. But, in all, but all things should be done decently and in order. So everything Paul's about to say, he's saying, and what I'm going to tell you, pursue love. Here's the summation of everything I've said. Everything must be done in decent and in order. Now look at the end of verse 5. This is just one instance. So that the church may be built up. So everything he's going to say in the middle, the thread that's going to hold, pursue love, everything done decent and in order, is that the church may be built up. So with that in our minds, let's pray. Lord, I pray now that as we study your word, we will pursue love. That the outcome of studying your word today would be that we would pursue love and that we would desire the upbuilding of your church. And Lord, that we would desire that everything that we do be done decently and in order, that you might be clear and that you might be glorified among us. Lead us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now what I want to do is to walk you through this text a little different than the way I normally handle a message, particularly something this lengthy. I want to tell you from the onset, I'm not going to answer all of your questions, but I do pray and desire that many of your questions will be answered. I want to begin by asking you a question. Don't answer out loud. When we gather, are we primarily hundreds of individuals worshiping the Lord, or are we one body worshiping the Lord? Your answer to that question determines how you're going to interpret chapter 14. If you just see yourself as an individual who've gotten together with another group of individuals who are all going to uniquely express yourself to God to get, uh, when you're in the same room, then you're going to interpret this text in a very personal way. Paul's not addressing you. He's addressing us. He's addressing the entire body at Corinth. And here's the problem. Corinth was function- functioning like a bunch of individuals who just got together in the same room. And as a result of that, they had disorder and confusion. So if we're going to pursue love, we've got to think about others. We're going to build the body. We've got to think about others. And to do things in order and without confusion, 
then we must pursue these things. So here's the main idea today. When the body of Christ gathers for worship, everything must be done decently and in order for the building up of the body. Now, prophecy and tongues are not the main idea. You notice it's not even stated in my main idea of the text. These are issues that were surrounding the Corinthian church involving the people. Now, when I use the words prophecy and tongues, I want you to know what I mean as I understand these words biblically. The word prophecy to some means simply preaching, proclaiming the word of God. To others, the word means speaking a message given by God directly, or as the shortened version of how people say it, I have a word from God. The New Testament meaning of the prophet is the one who speaks the words of God. Now we believe that the scripture is complete, that God has spoken to us through the Bible, his sufficient word to us. Therefore, in the truest sense of the word, the office and the gift of prophecy has ceased in that the word is complete. However, listen closely. The proclamation of God's word continues among his people and remains central. So the need for the particular gift of prophecy as it is defined in the New Testament may have ceased in the need that we have known it in the past, but we continue today for the need of speaking gifts that clearly reveal the word of God. Now tongues. I would define tongues as the gift of speaking human languages, not ecstatic languages. Speaking a language that can be interpreted and understood in a shared language. So in other words, when a person is speaking in tongues, an interpreter understands what they say and can then say it in a shared language so that others understand it. You say, what's your basis for that? Acts chapter 2 is my basis. Because on that day, when people were speaking, it says that each one heard in his own native language. Now, I repeat what I said a few moments ago. The core issue at hand is not prophecy in tongues. They serve as a point of reference and an illustration how the gathering of the church had become distracted by selfish and experiential behavior on the, on the, by some people. Paul is concerned that they pursue love, the building up of the body, that they do so with clear communication, and they carry it out decently and in order. And I don't mean formal, nor does Paul. Two major points. The first one will take me the longest to develop. When the body of Christ gathers for worship, everything must be done for the building up of the body. The first thing we see in the first five verses is the necessity of love and the desire of the building up of the body. Pursue love, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. 
As I've already said, pursue love is flowing out of his long explanation of what Christian love or Christ-like love looks like in 1 Corinthians 13. So as you're pursuing love, he says, earnestly desires the spiritual gifts. So Paul is saying from the onset, don't misinterpret me that I'm saying throw out the gifts. The gifts need to be rightly understood and rightly practiced so that the church may be built up. What he is doing here, right from the beginning, is he's contrasting the right use of tongues and prophecy with what was being practiced in Corinth. So let me just sum it up for you. The prophets were going on and on and on and on and on. And the tongue speakers were all talking at the same time. And those two things were hindering the upbuilding of the church and they were not a pursuit of love. So he says that the gift of prophecy is for the speaking of people for upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. Upbuilding, building the church, building up people, encouraging the church, encouraging people, comforting. Consolation means comfort, comforting the people. Now, this is opposed to personal experience, to what someone does on their own, what they came to enjoy and to experience. And what Paul's implying here in this first paragraph is if a tongue is interpreted, it ought to function just like prophecy. It ought to result in comfort and encouragement and edification. In other words, there should be a deep concern for others. Now let's go back to, or to the right, to Ephesians chapter 4. I've looked at this text several times over the last several weeks. Paul says, rather speaking the truth in love. This is really what he's saying to the Corinthians. Speak the truth in love. We're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, for whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint by which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So our concern, which means my concern, your concern, is that the body is built up and that we speak the truth in love. Now, this is a rather lengthy quote, but it's very understandable. There are many other things believers may find themselves interested in doing when they come to worship, which they find spiritually satisfying or beneficial to themselves, but which may not edify those gathered with them, or worse, it may serve as a distraction to others or otherwise detract from the edifying nature of the time spent together in worship. Love calls for all believers to exercise discernment in the use of our spiritual gifts, preferring those that will make the greatest contribution to the health of the body over ones that we might personally prefer to practice or those that would bring greater respect or esteem to the one who practices it. Now, brothers and sisters, let's just admit that a lot of what happens in the church is very personally driven. It's very self-focused. And Paul is pushing away from this self-focus. Now, he says something here in verse 5 that could be confusing that I want to address before I move on. He says that prophecy is the greater 
You say, well, wait a minute, Paul. You've been arguing all along not to lift one person or one gift above another. Why are you saying it's greater? Here's what Paul means. That as it relates to the function of communication, prophecy is the greater gift. Here's why. It's clear. You know what's being said. And as it relates to what Corinth was doing, tongues had become a very personal thing. Something that was for the individual. He even says it that specifically. So the next part, beginning in verse 6, Paul moves to explain the necessity of intelligible speech or clear speech. It's very interesting. 24 times in one chapter, 14, he uses the verb to speak. Paul's real concern here is what is spoken when God's people come together. He says, now brothers... If I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? So unless I bring you clear language, revelation and prophecy are connected, knowledge and teaching are connected. Unless I bring you clear, understandable language, how are you benefited? He offers illustrations. If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? So if I sat down over there at the piano right now and started playing, the best I could do is chopsticks. I can find middle C. If I just start plinking away at it, we're all going to go, nye, nye. but if Chad sits down over there, it's a completely different experience. He's a trained piano player, understands how those notes function, and can move across the keyboard with ease to give us meaningful sound. He says if a bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? Now he's using a particular use. That at that time there were no radios and ways to communicate with the soldiers, so they used bugles. And different ways of blowing the bugle told the soldiers what to do, whether to advance or to retreat or to pull back or those kind of things. He's saying if you don't give a distinct sound, then the soldier doesn't know what to do. Which implies if the church is not given clear instruction edification, upbuilding, it's not going to know what to do. Verse 9. So it's yourselves. If your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? The answer is you're not. For you'll be speaking in the area. Saying, basically, Paul's saying, just wasting your breath. There are doubtless many different languages in the world and none without meaning. But if, you do, if I do not know what the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and a speaker a foreigner to me. Now, if you follow the logic here, what Paul's saying is that what is spoken in the tongue has to have meaning. It's not just some impression. And the interpretation is not some impression. The tongue has meaning. The interpreter understands what is being said and then communicates that to others. Now, verse 12 pushes us and the Corinthians beyond focusing on the gift or the personal experience. He says, so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in the building up of the church. In other words, don't strive to experience the gift. Strive that you might use the spiritual gifts for the building up of the church to instruct others. That's the goal, not to display your gift. So here's a simple question that we need to ask so we get the understanding of what's being said. Very simple question. 
How will the church be built if no one understands what's being said? The answer is it will not. So how do you know you have understanding? So me, the speaker, you speaking. How do you know you have understanding? The answer is when people say amen. That's how you know. Watch, watch the flow here. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider, which can be translated inquirer, Say amen. What does amen mean? That's true. I agree. That's what amen means. So if somebody doesn't understand you, how can they say they agree with you? How can they say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough. So you may be using another language and giving thanks, and in your heart you're thankful, but the other person's not built up because they have no idea what you're doing. They don't know what you're saying. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, Paul says, in church, that is in the gathering, in the ecclesia, the gathering of God's people, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. He's using hyperbole here. He'd rather just say five clear things. So what Paul, what's Paul saying here? Now let's get this modern people. Paul is saying that your personal expression and your personal experience must not take precedence over clarity. Clarity shows a concern for other people. In Colossians chapter 4, Paul prayed that I may make it clear as I ought to speak. Clear, intelligible Speech. Why? Because clear, intelligible speech shows the necessity of gospel clarity. Verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. And what's Paul saying? You're thinking like kids. How do kids think? Who, who are kids thinking about? That's what he's saying. Quit thinking about you. Now, for his evil, be like a child. But in terms of the gathered body, quit thinking about you. Quit thinking about yourself. Be mature. And the law is written, by people of strange tongues and the lips of foreigners, will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. This is a reference to Isaiah 28, 11, when the, Assyri- the Lord sent the Assyrians with a, as a message of judgment to the people of Israel. Verse 22, thus tongues are... Not a sign for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign, not a sign for unbelievers, but for believers. This is a very confusing verse right here. There's a lot been written on it, a lot of confusion that surrounds it. The simplicity that is best I understand it is Paul is saying tongues is a message of judgment to a non-believer. Now, let's not get hung there because verse 23 is completely clear. We know exactly what he means right here. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or inquirers 
or unbelievers enter, will they not say, you are out of your minds? Now, I don't know, any of you, I don't know what your backgrounds are, I'm not belittling anything, but as a child, I, I was brought into an environment where this was happening. It scared me to death. Because I had no point of reference for it, I didn't know what was happening. Uh, and, um, yeah, as a non-believer, I, I really did think it was crazy. Um, and it went on for a very long time, uh, which even created more fear. So you have to, you have to be aware <laughs> What is what we're doing? How is it affecting others? Now, let me press this further. Do you know that is in terms of people around you, a lot of you are speaking in tongues? Here's what I mean. A lot of you use so many Christian cliches in what you say that lost people around you have no idea what you're talking about. Now, I read and study a lot in preparation for Sunday. I use Grammarly. Grammarly says that I, I, use, 90%, I use words that 90% of the population don't use when I write. Now, I don't use those words when I'm talking to you unless I define them clearly. You know why? Because I want you to understand me. I'm not concerned whether you're impressed that I know a bunch of big theological words. nor should you want people to be impressed with you. But it's not big theological words that you're throwing around. You're throwing around these Christian cliches. I'm too blessed to be stressed. What does that mean? We, we say these kind of things all the time to each other to where people don't even know what we're talking about. John Piper said it best. Unintelligible good news is not even news, let alone good. I'll repeat that one more time. Unintelligible good news is not even news, let alone good. Back to the text. If all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider, an inquirer, this is somebody who's interested, enters, he is convicted by all, he is called into account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Now let's go back to the previous group. Here's what they're banking on. The unbeliever comes in. We're having this wild ecstatic worship experience with each other. And we're saying, God's here. God's here. And the lost person's over here going, no, he's not. You people are crazy. So Paul's saying, here's what ought to happen. It ought to be so clear that the lost person falls on their face in repentance. Now don't miss this. Paul's going to go to chapter 15, and the first thing he's going to say is, this is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that he was buried and raised on the third day according to the Scripture. We must be clear with the gospel when we gather. For how shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have never heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching or proclaiming? So here's my question then. How do we assure gospel clarity? Well, Paul answers it but this way. That when the body of Christ gathers for worship, everything must be done decently and in order for the building up of the body of Christ. So order must be in place of confusion. Now listen very carefully to me. What Paul is going to do, and this, this, this plays out in church history, 
but it plays out primarily in the New Testament. What Paul is going to offer here is descriptive of his solution for what needs to happen in Corinth. There's some major principles here, but Paul is not giving the order of service for how every church ought to function every Sunday. He's describing what took place there. So what then, brothers? When you come together, each one, he doesn't mean each and every person brings a hymn and each and every person a lesson. He's saying the church is participating together, a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Now, if you've not been underlining that phrase, you need to start doing it. That's the issue. It's not what you do, it's why you do it. Let all things be done for building up, not personal gratification or self-promotion. So very specifically now, he's going to temper the use of tongues and prophecy. So let me just deal with something before I go any further. Well, the Spirit's leading me, Pastor. <laughs> when, when I, when I used, used to be a time people would come forward into the service. We'd already been here a long time. Service is over. Spirit's leading me to say something. No. You say, well, how do you know, preacher? Here's how I know. Everybody's ready to go. Amen. You ever been there? Last thing you want somebody talking. Here's the principle he's going to give to the prophet. Sit down. You've been preaching long enough. You guys today, I'm, I'm, I am teetering on too long today because I know it's going to take me about 40 minutes today. 35 is about all you can give me. You're moderns. That's just who you are. Us putting up two or three prophets on Sunday morning in the 21st century, it's not going to happen. It is just not going to happen. People aren't going to sit and listen that long in this kind of society, in this kind of culture. Now, you may, you may can do it as an individual, but predominantly, that's not going to happen. So he says, if any speak in a tongue, let there be two or at most three. He said, you're pushing it if we go to three here. And each in turn, one at a time, and let someone interpret. But if no one interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. So what's he saying? Hey, Corinth, there may be a Sunday nobody speaks in a tongue. Doesn't mean you've had church because somebody did. Then he says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. We'll come back to that. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. What's he saying? You can control the gift. Yes, it's from the Spirit, but you can say it's time to be quiet. It's time to yield the floor. It's time to let someone else speak. Well, people have had enough. If the revelation is made to another, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one. And here it is again. Here's why. So that all may learn and be encouraged. The goal is that the congregation learn and be encouraged and the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Now, if you look over in Acts chapter 17, you hear about the Bereans. Here's what it specifically says about the Bereans in verse 11. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scripture to see if these things were so. Now, the Bible is now complete. So whatever a preacher gets up and says, somebody like me or a teacher, you take what they say, you put it on this side of a scale. So I want you to imagine one of those old-timey scales that move back and forth like this. And you put the standard on this side, here's the standard weight. It's the Bible. 
You take what somebody says, you put it over here, and if it does not balance with the Word of God, you throw this out and you keep this. Well, God's given me a new insight. If it doesn't line up with this, it wasn't from God. The Word of God is the standard. Verse 33. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. That the peace of God is to surround the people of God, not this air of confusion. Now, we see a place where confusion was entering, actually two places, which leads to this final sub-point I want to make, the submission instead of tension. This is how we keep order. That's to be submission among us. Without submission, we have tension. The first people he, agree, he addresses are women. There are a group of women causing confusion. It says, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as to the law, as the law also says, if there is anything desired to learn, let them ask their husbands at home for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, I dare say some of you have grown up in denominational settings where you've heard this verse quoted many, many times, but you've heard it out of context. So I got to ask this question. Is Paul saying here, don't answer out loud yet. Is Paul saying that a woman must never open her mouth in the gathering of God's people? If that's what he's saying here, Paul contradicted himself. Really? Really? Turn to chapter 11 and I'll show you. Verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head cover, uh, covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So is Paul acknowledging that women pray and prophesy in the church? Yes. yes. All right. So let's just get that clear. Okay. Now let's go back to chapter 14 and scratch our heads and go, well, what in the world is Paul saying? Put it in context. Here's what was happening. Prophets were speaking and women were speaking up over and correcting the prophets. Paul's saying, no. That goes against culture. It goes against God's design of how things are supposed to be done. God has clearly established that men are to be the elders in the church, that men are to hold the office that I hold to be the people who the person who offers the preaching and teaching in the life and congregation. That's 1 Timothy. It's another passage. I don't have time to go there. But here's what he's saying. If a woman has a question about what has been said by a prophet, she's to ask her husband at home. Some even think that he's implying that the husband just prophesied and the wife corrected him, which would be a massive no-no. You say, well, what if the husband's wrong? She's to deal with it. And God does use women. Listen, my wife in private has corrected this preacher more than one time. And she should have. She should have. It wasn't too long ago. It was about six months ago, I walked over. She was standing in the window. She runs the preschool. And she said, you were in your flesh. I just went and got in the car. I knew it was going to be a long day. <laughs> Thank God for her. But she did that in private. She didn't stand up over there and go, hey, preacher, you're in your flesh. That would be disorder, confusion. 
Now he deals with the second issue. Verse 36. Was it from you that the word of God came? Are you the ones, only ones that has reached? The answer to both these rhetorical questions is no. If someone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Now, how can Paul make such an audacious statement? He is an apostle. He is one sent by the Lord Jesus. He is one who is speaking and writing the word of God. And he says, if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. 1 John 4, 6. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So Paul is saying, if you're rejecting what I'm saying, then you are rejecting what God is telling you. Now, one of you better not get up and say, well, you know, I'm a prophet. I see this different than Paul. I think Paul's wrong. Let's just keep doing what we're doing. Paul says, no, that is not from God. What I'm telling you is from God. But, verse 39 Brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. I'm not telling you to throw out spiritual gifts. So don't misinterpret me. I'm telling you how to function in such a way, decently in order, so that you do not overreact here and throw the gifts out. A way that the church is built. Now let me deal with this phrase because I'm going to get questions about it. Do not forbid speaking in tongues. I have pondered and thought much about this. Not just in preparation for this, but over the years. This calls for more questions. Like one question I have, and, and I doubt this is in very many brains, okay? Why since the Protestant Reformation has tongue speaking been so rare? I have an answer for it. Because prior to that, church was in tongues. It was in Latin. And when people got clarity to speak the word of God in their language again, they stuck true to that and held fast to it. It wasn't until the 20th century that the Pentecostal movement started. It's a fairly new thing on the scene. And it has affected a lot of different things and led to some confusion and disorder than more than one church. And I'm not saying that every Pentecostal church is confused and disordered. Where I differ from Pentecostalism is this. You do not have to speak in tongues to be a Christian. That is adding to the gospel. And I believe that is a heretical teaching. So we push back and we push away from that. That's, that's one of the things that separates us from Pentecostal movement. But not all people who believe in speaking in tongues are Pentecostal. So, so what, do, what do we do with this phrase, do not forbid speaking in tongues? Well, this became an issue at Parkwood in the mid-70s. Some of you are too young or weren't even born then to even know what was happening in the 70s. But the charismatic movement was at its height in the mid-70s. And it was affecting everything, every church. Not just Pentecostal churches, Baptist churches, Methodist churches, Catholic churches. It was everywhere. And it came to Parkwood. And in the mid-70s, our founding pastor, Parkwood, was about just over 10 years old at this point. Our founding pastor preached a sermon from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. His point was the building up of the body. 
And he answered the question, how is Parkwood going to respond to speaking in tongues? Now, this sermon was so pivotal, not only in the life of this church, it was printed uh, by Southern Baptists and placed in a book of significant sermons that were preached in the 70s. I'm reading one paragraph. Now, this is him standing over in building A, preaching to the gathering of Parkwood. He said, Many persons in the church family on both sides of this issue have acted as though the church were a rope and a personal tug of war. It seems that some have forgotten that the body of Christ can be hurt in this kind of struggle. Others seem to be more concerned in trying to move the church one way or the other rather than finding the will of God. We have acted in our own wisdom and our own assumptions instead of searching for ways to build the body of Christ, the church. Watch his play on words here because he means gossip, but watch this. Our personal desires have taken precedence over the will of God. We have been busy with our tongues when we ought to have been on our knees. And he stood up to personal preference. And it's my understanding, talking to the older members today, I didn't know this part, a significant group of people got up while he was preaching and left. Brothers and sisters, listen. This is not about you. It's not about what you want. And I, I say this with kindness when I'm going to say next. If you're looking for a church that will do what you want, then go find it. Because they're everywhere. But what we do is we seek God's word and God's will and we seek to edify the body here. Not to do what the individual wants to do. Why? Because we are the body of Christ and we are not consumers. So here's my, here's my question this morning. This is my so what. When we gather as the body of Christ, are we selfish consumers, passive observers, or loving participants? You see, tongue's not the issue at Parkwood today. We're not Corinth and we're not Parkwood in the mid-70s. You know what our problem is today? Consumerism. You don't know how many times this preacher has had conversations in that lobby and how many times I've received emails. Parkwood's not meeting my needs. We're out. That's modern church, man. If it ain't for me, if it ain't scratching my itch, I'm going to find somewhere it scratches my itch. Folks, church isn't about you. When you get that right, you're going to find the right church. You're not sure whether they amen me or not. When you get that right, you're looking for a church that teaches the Word of God and reminds you it isn't about you. Because when we are all living where it's not about me, it's about the church and one another building up the church, then that's the kind of church you want to be a part of because that's where we're caring for each other. But if you're just a consumer and you're looking for your needs to be met all the time and things to be done the way you want to do, you're never going to be happy. Now we got this new group, the Passive Observer where you're just flipping through your Instagram feed liking something. You're not really paying attention. You're just enduring this that you can get out and you might like part of what's said and just go on and move on with the rest of your day. And it has no effect, just like that Instagram post you looked at this morning. You're not thinking about it at all. What we are to be about is to be a loving participant. 
In Colossians, he describes this. I'm not going to read the whole thing, verses 12 to 17. I just want to read verse 15, 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you, or dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Has it ever occurred to you that you instruct each other when you come here on Sunday? Has it ever crossed your mind? Every time you open your mouth to sing, you're teaching each other. Every time. That's why we sing gospel-centered songs. That's why we sing songs that are saturated in Scripture, so that when you're singing, you're teaching. In fact, some of the most profound teaching that happens is in our singing. That in the Word of God, that the Word is clearly proclaimed and offered to you. What is at stake? Here's what's at stake. The building up of the body and the clarity of the gospel. This week, I got an email from a young couple who've recently come in the life of our church. The leading lines were this. We're newly married and we were struggling. Now this is what follows. We love the focus on God's word, how you diligently stay to the text and its context. I've never seen a book come alive as much as I have 1 Corinthians. I find myself hungry to learn more. Sunday is a day that we look forward to. I can say the same for our growth group. They have taken us in so quickly. It has been amazing to see how God has grown us in this short period of time. It has been rejuvenating to me and my wife. We are now both looking toward getting involved and trying to serve as well. And this is very exciting to us. They get it. By the way, I have permission to read this. They get it. It's about the clarity of the word. It's about being involved with others. It's about giving yourself away. That's Paul's point. Let's be clear with the word. Let's let's, let's care about each other. Let's give ourselves away for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, I dare say that many of us still have lots of questions. I know I do. I thank you that your word is sufficient and it continues to unfold to teach us and instruct our hearts. Lord, I pray for us that we will not give in to something that would distract or create confusion or divide us. That we would look to your word and that we would allow your word to dictate who we are, what we do, and how we function. And Lord, I pray that when outsiders, inquirers, and people who are unbelieving come into this place, to our growth group gatherings or whatever we are doing, I pray that we would be clear, that the gospel would be clear in all that we say and do. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for redeeming us through your blood on the cross and through the power of the resurrection. Thank you for making us a new people now. May we express ourselves to you in song as we speak to you and to one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.